Amen. Thank you, Stephen, for praying for us. Uh, It's good to be able to add a welcome to the welcome Simon already gave. And if you have your Bible, please do open up to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6, this letter to the church in the city of Sardis. Now, as most of you know, uh, Lindsay and I have three children, and they have really been enjoying their half-term lions over this past week. No early morning wake-up call, no need to get out early onto buses or for school runs or anything like that. And to be honest, mum and dad have also been enjoying those half-term lions to some extent as well. But tomorrow, we all know it's back to porridge. It's back to those early wake-up calls. And at times, I'll be honest, it can be hard to get our children moving in the morning. It goes kind of like this. One of us will go in early on into the kids' rooms, throw open the curtains and say, right up you get, wakey, wakey, rise and shine. My mum used to say to me when I was young, uppity up, and it used to do my head in. (laughs) But I find myself now saying uppity up to my children early in the morning. But often there's not much response other than a bit of a groan. And so maybe five minutes later, you go back in and you say, right, come on, clap the hands, let's get moving, time to get going, you got to win the day by lunchtime. It's another phrase that I picked up once and I love to use, as well as uh, the battle with the duvet is fought the night before, get to bed on time. So amidst that, uh, if that doesn't work then, those words, those warnings, those wake-up calls, then the final straw is dealt really, and I go in and I literally just pull the duvet off and just whip it off and say, right, wake up, let's get going. And that's what we're back to tomorrow morning. Now, why do I begin by telling you about our morning wake-up calls? Well, simply because the letter that we're considering this morning from Jesus to the church at Sardis is Jesus's wake-up call to Christians who have fallen asleep. And I don't mean that they have fallen asleep physically, but they had fallen asleep, we could say, spiritually. As we look at this letter, we see that on the face of it, much looked good about this local church in the city of Sardis. It was a relatively stable church, we know. They could well have had lots of active ministries. They could have put up videos like we put up this morning. They at Sardis had a good reputation of being a lively church. But Jesus in this letter comes to them and says there is a problem. There is an inner spiritual dullness about them. Lots of good stuff on the outside, but on the inside, there's a dullness, a lack of vitality that needs to be confronted and cured. Twice in this letter, in verse 2 and verse 3, we hear Jesus calling the believers in Sardis to simply wake up. And this is a call I believe we need to hear again from Jesus today. Now, why do I say that? Well, because in our generation, there is, we could say, a pandemic 
of spiritual lethargy that has quietly fallen upon our culture. And I'm not just speaking of a spiritual lethargy out there, but inside the church. Like those at Sardis today in Northern Ireland, we are great at being busy for Jesus. On Sunday, we're present and active, we're involved. We all look this morning like a picture of spiritual health. But when all the activity is stripped away, we have to ask ourselves, is there anything of real substance left? We have to ask ourselves, when we take away all of our externals and all of our service, do we have an active relationship with God? Are you someone who works for Jesus without walking with Jesus? Well, if some of that resonates with you this morning and challenges you, take heart. There is so much in this passage for you. The purpose of this passage is to call us to wake up from a spiritual slumber so that we can pursue fresh spiritual vitality, knowing that Jesus is ready to put the fresh wind of his spirit into our breathless seals. This wake-up call to those in Sardis, Sardis consists of three parts. First, Jesus confronts their problem of spiritual lifelessness. Second, he tells them what they need to do now to put things right. And third, he gives them a series of motivating statements to get them up and going. And that's going to be the outline that we follow this morning. So first, we see that Jesus confronts their problem of spiritual lifelessness. Look down at verse 1. In this letter of the church at Sardis, we're told that these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we know again from chapter 1 that this refers to Jesus. He was revealed in chapter 1 as the one who has the seven spirits and who holds the seven stars. Seven spirits in the book of Revelation always refers to the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Spirit. Those seven stars refer to the host of angels who are appointed to serve Christ's church on earth. This church, as we'll see, needs spiritual renewal. And so this introduction points us to Jesus Christ as the one who gives his spirit to his people. And we'll come back to that towards the end of the message. But I want us to recognize this morning 
that this is what we need more than anything if we're in a place where there's a lack of vitality spiritually about us. We need to be filled again with the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. But what I want us to hear straight away is what Jesus has to say in this confrontation to the believers at, in Sardis. In every letter we've considered so far, Jesus has opened with words of commendation to the churches. But here, he gets straight to the heart of a deep problem in the church at Sardis. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, this is deeply searching for us as a fellowship and for us as individuals. Jesus is saying, on the outside, everything looks good. You have a busy church calendar, lots of people hard to make it all work. Everyone comes on a Sunday and they're smiley, happy faces. People know when to stand up at the right time, sit down at the right time, and they know all the right things to say and do. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But then he says, but I know the reality for many of you. The outward presentation is covering over something. It's covering over the reality of a lack of spiritual vitality within. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The Greek text actually says you have a name for being alive, but you're dead. You're nominal. Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, you've become all about the externals. Martha-like, if you will doing lots of busy works, but there's a void within, a tomb-like emptiness where there should be life. Did you pick up in the passage that we read earlier from Luke 10, Martha and Mary? Martha, Jesus said, had become distracted with much serving. This had happened in the church at Sardis. And we have to ask ourselves, could this be happening amidst, among us? Back about 20 years ago, Matt Redmond, the Christian songwriter, wrote a song with the title, The Heart of Worship. The course goes like this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And Redman in this hymn has put his finger on something that 
often we have a tendency to do as Christians. That is, we have a tendency to overemphasize the activities of the Christian life and to underemphasize the call to the cultivation of a real relationship with the author of the Christian life. We can make our Christian lives about many things. We can make them all about service. I've known some people in churches who get so used to serving that if you take the service away from them, they can't function. They have to sit at the sound desk. They cannot sit in a service beside their wives and worship. They cannot function if they're not doing something. We can make it all about service. We can make church life all about busyness, meetings, outreach, keeping the church going, really good things. But if all of those things are not rooted first in a vibrant, dynamic love for Jesus, all ministry flowing from there, we've got a bit of a disconnect between our outer life and our inner reality. I've shared this story with some of you before, um, but for some of you it may be new. When I was young and occasionally speaking in different meetings around the countryside in Tyrone and Armagh, I remember once uh, in this meeting run by a, a farmer, um, he came to speak to me afterwards about ministry and preaching, and I, I shared my heart and say, explained my desire to, to be a pastor and uh, to give my life to serving the Lord in local church ministry. And I remember that farmer with a very strong accent saying to me, whatever you do, remember this young fella. It's 100% easier to get involved in the work of the Lord than it is to get involved with the Lord of the work. And I've never forgot that. It only takes a short while in life and ministry before you realize how true that is. We know this, don't we? So much easier to get involved in being busy for Jesus than enjoying resting in Jesus. Well, Jesus addresses this problem to the believers in Sardis and to us. We have to let his word and his spirit search us this morning. Could it be said of any of us or of us corporately, you at Great Vic have the reputation for being alive. There's something wrong with the core inside. A lack of spiritual vitality. Love for Jesus. Jesus says to those in Sardis and to us, you have an outward reputation that does not match their inner reality of your spiritual state. You might be able to hide that reality from others, but I know the reality, says Jesus. And I think we need to draw back from this and reflect for a moment. It is easy for us to forget that the foundational reality of being a Christian is that we are people who are to have a relationship with God. A relationship with God. That's the primary thing. 
Jesus is exposing those at Sardis who have fallen into the mistake of thinking that they can work for Jesus and not worry about walking with Jesus. And remember, before we move on, that this confrontation comes from love. In 3.19, Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove. Jesus doesn't want us to be nominal Christians. He doesn't want us to bear the name Christian and to look good on the outside when inwardly there's a lack of spiritual life. And so he lovingly comes and calls us to something better than external on the face of it, Christianity. So let's ask ourselves before we move on, could this be a confrontation we have needed this morning? Maybe for some years you have been putting on a bit of a show. Outwardly, you're putting up a good show, but inwardly, when Jesus says, I know your deeds, it cuts through you. Is there something you need to do? This may be the confrontation that some of us need to wake us from spiritual sleepwalking. Maybe some of us spiritually just slept walked into church this morning and you might just want to sleepwalk back out again. Well, here is Christ's call to wake up. So, after this confrontation... Jesus now comes to tell those in Sardis and us what we should do about this problem of spiritual internal deadness and lethargy. In fact, here in verses 2 and 3, Jesus proceeds to tell those at Sardis what to do, how to do it, and why they must do it. What to do? First of all, verse 2, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is an urgent call to do something now before it's too late. This wake-up call shows us that it is spiritual lethargy that is the real problem Jesus is addressing here to the church at Sardis. If someone's asleep and they should be awake, what do they need? A wake-up call. Jesus is saying to spiritually sleepy Christians this morning, Wake up! This is taken from Isaiah 52 verse 1. John seems to be drawing on this. Jesus seems to be drawing on the Old Testament where in Isaiah 52 1, God declared to a slumbering people, Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O Zion! Shake yourself! Shake yourself from the dust! and arise. This may be the splash of cold water in the face that you need to awaken you out of your deep-seated spiritual lethargy. This is a call to get real, to recognize that you've been in spiritual drift mode for too long. You've got to shake yourself from your half-heartedness, your complacency, your worldliness. You're playing it safe to pursue comfort. You've got to seek fresh spiritual strength. 
This speaks of something that we are to do. Think of a fire that's burnt down low and is nearly going out. We have a wee stove in our kitchen and love when it's lit and it's warm and it's nice. And every now and again, you're super cozy and you see the fire's going down and I'm hoping that Lindsay's going to get up and put the next block on it and she's hoping that I'm going to put the next block on it and we just sort of are sitting there watching it go down. But what do you need to do when a fire's going down like that in your little stove? Someone needs to get up <laughs> and they need to do something. They need to put a block on it. They need to open the little dampers to let the air in so that there's a draw. There's wind, there's oxygen, there's life. Before it's too late, we've got to pursue new life. You don't want to live your Christian life with just lethargy all the time. There's so much more than just lethargy. We've got to open up the dampers, so to speak. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, open up our prayer lives to the Spirit of the living God. Ask for renewal that we would burn bright again. We've got to wake up. We've got to seek a fresh lease of life from the Spirit of God. A fresh baptism with the Spirit, if you will. Filling with the Spirit. New life. Well, Jesus, as I said, doesn't just tell them what to do. Then he goes on to say how to do it. How do we wake up and pursue this fresh spiritual life? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize what we don't do, we don't try to keep up appearances. Does anyone remember the TV program? Some of you are too young to remember this. Keeping up appearances? Do you remember it? There was this lady called Hyacinth Bouquet, spelled bucket, B-U-C-K-E-T, but she wanted it pronounced Bouquet because she was posh. And her and her husband, poor Richard, uh, her husband, she made every effort to keep up appearances that she was upper class, posh, like royalty. She put so much effort into keeping up appearances, making it look like she had it all together, to the extent where she would even hide away her working class family members. Do you remember Daisy and Onslow in his string vest? And, and wasn't it Rose, the, the sort of I don't know what to say about Rose, but Rose who, who fancied the vicar. Hyacinth used to hate when they turned up at the door because it ruined her nice show. Well, here's the first thing we need to do if our inner reality doesn't match our outward presentation. We need to stop keeping up appearances. How do we do that? Well, first... In the middle of verse 3 there, Jesus uses the word repent. That's the first thing we need to do if we have found ourselves in a prolonged state of spiritual lethargy. That means there should be confession of the sin of lethargy and a turning away from it to pursue vitality. You get real. Then, secondly, we get back to basics. Look at what Jesus says to the church in verse 3. Remember then what you've received and keep it. That's Jesus saying, remember the gospel. 
rediscover the nature of amazing grace. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. You were condemned under sin and guilt, destined for hell. And Christ has snatched you and saved you and given you life. Remember what Christ has done for you. Though he was rich, yet, for, yet though for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And there's your rich in Christ person acting like a spiritual poor man or poor woman. We've got to get back to the basics of the gospel. We've got to get back to remembering the call to discipleship where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Perhaps maybe one way we could do this this morning is get back to the questions that Jesus asked Peter at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 21. Do you remember when Peter had denied Christ in his moment of deep spiritual lethargy and deadness around the fire? Do you remember three times Peter denied Jesus? And then this beautiful recommissioning service is set up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee by Jesus. And Jesus asks Peter, who must have been feeling very sheepish around Jesus, he just asks him this simple question, Peter, do you love me? There's where it all starts. Before you go and do any ministry and mission for me, Peter, here's the question that it all must flow from. Do you love me? And three times, Jesus invites this affirmation from Peter to cancel out those three denials. And after Peter says three times, you know, Lord, you know the reality of what's in my heart. I struggle, I have denied you, I confess my sin, but you know, Lord, that I love you. Then Jesus says, okay, go and do your ministry. Maybe that's a question we need to get back to. Maybe we just need to get back to the basics. Do you love me? And you'll confess this morning, Lord, you know the weakness, you know the struggles, but Lord, I know, you know, deep down, I love you, Lord. And then from there, we think on the gospel and we allow the beauty of just simple saving grace to nurture a fire again in our heart. Jesus called the Ephesians to get back to their first love. He calls those at Sardis to remember. He calls them to get back to doing the basics well and consistently. Practically, maybe for some of us, we need to pare back some Martha-like busyness to create space for some Mary-like sitting at the feet of Jesus. To share how I've tried to apply this this year, I've decided instead of trying to read the Bible through in a year this year, I'm shortening down what I'm reading, just a chapter uh, a morning, so that I can spend more time just meditating on what I'm reading, reading less, um, to 
meditate more, just to try and pare back a little bit of the volume to just really sit and ponder at the feet of Jesus. That's just one small way in which that's working out in my own life at the moment. I've said this before, um, but I think it's, it's important to recognize there should be half of Mary in every Martha and half of Martha in every Mary. Remember the names. There's half of Martha in Mary and there's half of Mary in Martha. The whole point of the narrative of Mary and Martha in Luke's gospel, it comes in between this period of ministry busyness and it's to reset balance. Yes, there should be sitting at Jesus' feet. But we can't all become monks and just go and hide away and sit at Jesus' feet all the time. We're called to get out there and serve. To be like Martha, busy serving the Lord. But there's half of Mary in every Martha and half of Martha in every Mary. That's the way it should be. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, communing with him, enjoying him, and then from that flows our service. So Jesus tells them, what they must do. They've got to wake up and pursue fresh spiritual strength. He tells them how they can do it. Stop keeping up appearances. Repent. Get real. Get back to basics. Remember your call to just love Jesus and minister from that place of love. And then in verse 3b, he tells them why they must do it. And Jesus says simply because your works are not complete in the sight of God. You're half-baked. There's something lacking. This is Jesus' way of saying your works are not flowing from your communion with God. You're neglecting your relationship with God, the affection, the love, the enjoyment of God. And second, Jesus says, for those that don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now that echoes the Gospels, what Jesus said. While I'm away, stay awake. Work to increase the master's assets. Don't sleep on the job. I'll return and you don't want to be caught asleep. This is a warning designed to stir us into action. Listen, this is a wake-up call for us from Jesus this morning where you do not want to hit the snooze button. I know some of you love the snooze button, and I mean here physically. I know some people who actually set their alarm earlier so that they can enjoy hitting the snooze button a few times. I don't get that at all. Why not just get the extra 10 minutes of good sleep rather than broken up sleep? I don't understand it. Come and talk to me afterwards if you want to justify hitting the snooze button a few times. But this is a wake-up call from Jesus where you don't want to hit snooze. Wake up. Pursue new life. Get back to gospel basics and rediscover a love for Jesus. So, Jesus has uh, confronted this problem of spiritual lifelessness. He's told those at Sardis and us today what we must do about this problem. And now finally he gives them these motivating statements to encourage them to press on into a new day. Three motivating statements. First is verse four. You still have a few names in Sardis, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
Jesus is saying, there is a remnant among you who are not spiritually sleepwalking through the world, not playing the pretend game. And he says, they will walk with me in white, which signifies real communion with Jesus in the here and now in his righteousness. Made worthy because of faith in Christ alone. Do you remember in the context of fallenness and death in Genesis 5, when this little ray of light enters the narrative in the form of Enoch? What do we read after all these deaths and all this problem and all this sinfulness? And Enoch walked with God. I love the idea of walking with God being a summary of the whole Christian life. Just walking through life with God. In the morning, waking up and looking to Him for life. Through the day, just depending on the Lord. In the evening, thanking God. Just day after day, facing our troubles, our joys, the different chapters of life, events of life. Just walking with God. Here, Jesus is reminding His people that our call as Christians is to enjoy walking with him, to enjoy a relationship with him where we are enjoying walking in the righteousness he gives to us. Jesus is inviting those at Sardis to keep pressing on in walking with him, not just working for him. The second motivating statement then uh, comes there in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Where in that first motivation, Jesus was speaking of communion with him in the here and now. In the second, he's speaking of communion with him in the future. Jesus wants us to know that we will be secure with him forever. In Revelation 19, we are told that Christ clothes his people in white so that they are ready to enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb. The white robes stand for the righteousness that Christ clothes his people with. That is what is needed for us to enjoy communion with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth forever. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are still walking about in dirty clothes, spiritually speaking. And Jesus stands with grace in his heart and eyes and with a righteousness that can be yours if you will receive his righteousness by faith and recognize that your own righteousness is filthy rags. You can't merit or earn his favor or his grace. You must receive his grace by trusting in him. And Jesus says those who have enjoyed his righteousness by grace through faith, their names are written in the book of life and they'll never be blotted out of it. We will have no fear of ever being cast away. For those who are in 
the Lamb's book of life, those names will never be erased. And Jesus wants us to feel that security. He wants that to have a motivating effect on us. Then the third statement comes there again in the end of verse 5. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is beautiful. Jesus will be proud to own his people's name, names in heaven, at the very moment where it counts and onwards. And I find it helpful to imagine a scene of judgment. Imagine we were standing in a courtroom and Satan was there to accuse us and to explain to God all the reasons why we should never be permitted to enter heaven. But the only thing he could ever bring against us would be a folder of unforgiven sin. And imagine Satan taking up your name and accusing you before God, and Jesus says, stop right there. Steve Auld is one of mine. You have no claim on his life, Satan, because you have no unforgiven sin to bring up against him. None. That's amazing. Jesus paid it all. And imagine on that day, who do you want owning and confessing your name before the Father, your mediator? The only one out of the billions, the multitudes that counts, Jesus. He will own your name and say, that one is mine. That's everything. And Jesus wants us to know that now. He wants us to know that he will own our name and confess it before the Father. But the question is, does he own your name? Now, are you a Christian, one of Christ's ones? Not nominal, just in name only. Have you been born again? Is there spiritual life within? Let's close here by coming back to what I said we'd come back to, the beginning of the letter. Here Jesus has confronted the problem of spiritual lethargy. He's told the believers and us what we should do about it, how we do it. He's told us why we must do it. And he's given, motiv- given us motivation. But I just want us to finish here. Jesus, in his grace, doesn't just leave us to try and revive ourselves. Every one of these introductions to the letters picks up on a characteristic or something to do with Jesus from the opening vision in Revelation chapter 1. And every single introduction and what it tells us about Jesus is relevant for what that particular church needs. And so here at the beginning of this letter, do you remember we were told these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Here's the one who has the Holy Spirit. That is telling us here is what 
you need more than anything else in your place of spiritual deadness. You need the Holy Spirit from Jesus. In Luke eleven nine and following, Jesus told us to do this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Father gives the Spirit through the Son to the people of Christ. I remember attending a little conference for pastors that was actually um, put on in Whitewell a number of years ago. And the pastor then, uh, Jim McConnell, uh, was doing a question-answer session at the end of it. And I was young, and I was a Presbyterian at the time, and I was thinking of going to Union to uh, study for the Presbyterian minister, uh, ministry. And I, I put up my hand and asked uh, the, the pastor, Jim McConnell, a question. I said, uh, Pastor McConnell, I'm thinking of going on into Presbyterian ministry, and I'm wondering if I should go to Bible college, or if I should work for a little longer, or what I should do. And I remember, it scared the life out of me. He walked up to me, he was quite a big man. He walked right up to me and he said, son, what you need more than ever is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now he was a charismatic, that's a textbook answer from a charismatic, but you know he was right. And I don't mean that I needed the baptism of the Spirit or a second experience or anything like that, what I did need more than anything for ministry in life was to be a man filled with the Spirit. That's true for all of us. What we need more than anything in our enjoyment of Christ, our enjoyment of the Father, our evangelism, our service, our church membership, individually and corporately at Great Vic, we need to be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit, longing for the Spirit, praying and asking the Father along with the Son, to give us the greatest gift of all, new life in the Spirit, and ongoing revitalization from the Holy Spirit. That is why this letter is headed with Jesus being the one who has the Spirit ready to put that wind into the sagging sails of the church at Sardis. But the question is, how would the church respond to his confrontation. And that's why the letter ends, as it does in verse 6, with this familiar refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, what might the Lord's Spirit be saying to you this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and this has been a call for you to wake up and get saved. Give your life to Jesus. Have your name written in his book. Repent from your sins. Receive his righteousness. Maybe this is a wake-up call for you if you're here and you are a Christian, but you've been a nominal Christian. It's just a name only, and you would be ashamed if everyone knew the reality. Maybe this is the call you need to tell you to stop pretending, get real, confess your sin, and pursue new life. Maybe that's what you need this morning. Well, once again, let's be encouraged Jesus doesn't just come to confront the reality of our lethargy. He comes to help us with it. He lovingly comes to say, I have the Spirit. I have life. I have righteousness for you. Just get back again to, the, to your answer to this simple question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Let's pray together.
Father, this message is both confrontation and encouragement. And what I do pray, Father, above all, is that if there's anyone this morning that's just playing the game of pretend, I just pray that now, by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, you would break them and break down that outer facade and from the inside out bring renewal. If there's anyone that's dead in their sins, and Jesus says, I know you're dead, oh, I pray that that person this morning would cry out from the depths of their heart with a spirit-inspired, illuminated cry, saying, Lord Jesus, give me those white robes for my filthy soul. Cleanse me from the inside out and make me new. And Lord, for each of us, I just pray that your spirit would inspire and motivate and encourage us to that new life that begins very simply with faith in Christ, that longing for life, and that simple cultivation of a real relationship with you that is right at the heart of our faith. Lord, continue your work among us, we pray, as we respond in song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to sing uh, a song that invites the Spirit to bring new life within. Let's stand together and sing.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound with hope. Amen.